Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Paul's letter to Titus, Titus chapter 2, beginning in verse 9, and going through chapter 3, verse 2, Titus 2, 9 to 3, 2. Before we hear God's word read, let's go to him again, asking for his help in knowing, seeing this text. Our God, in your light do we see light. Help us then through the light of your word, by the power and the work of your spirit, help us to know this text better than we did before, that we might worship you with greater faithfulness. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Titus 2, 9 through 3, 2. Hear now the word of God. Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. And may God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. <clears throat> the S word is one of those naughty words. I don't mean any curse words, though it is often viewed as a curse word. Of course, what I'm speaking of is the word submission. It is a word that is wildly misunderstood and hotly hated. As you are all aware, the game of politics is afoot these days. The candidates want your vote, wanted your vote, or at least they don't want you to vote for that other guy. And one method of dissuading us from voting for that person is to point out the apparently outdated beliefs that that candidate has. Certainly, the argument goes, we wouldn't want anyone in power who is not with the times. Now, one news piece went after a popular pastor whose influence could sway many voters. And so the, the thinking is, if we could discredit this pastor who supports this politician, then we can, we can discredit the politician. And so the new news article went to work and highlighted some of the church's beliefs that this pastor was, uh, was ministering at. Can you believe, the piece argued, emotionally, of course, not logically, that this guy's church believes in submission, that wives are to be submissive to their husbands? Can you believe that? This man is stuck in the dark ages of fundamentalism. His benighted mind clearly has not seen the light of the day's cultural transformation. After all, submission is a thing of the past, isn't it? And how can it not be? Nobody knows what a woman is. So how can, in the case of wives, men, or husbands, 
How can there be submission of this undefined being to another individual? And of course, we have these self-identification politics, don't we? If I view myself as a mayor, does that mean I am one? If I view myself as a president, does that mean I am the president? Why would you deny me of this? So there really is no submission, at least in the mind of, of many, except in the case of suppression. The world finds most kinds of submission objectionable. And I say most kinds because many in power today would prefer our silent submission while they suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness. But the truth of the Word of God is that submission is not only a necessary good, but it is a good thing. It is to be encouraged. It is commendable. Submission, like chocolates, comes in different shapes, sizes, and sweetness. But it is a good. It is a good not only for the right order of civil society, but it is good for church order as well. Remember, Paul is seeking the soundness of the church. So he is giving Titus exhortations on how to create a healthy church, how to bring about godly order. And one of those is, one of those features of godly order is godly submission. God's people are a submissive people because of the example and the grace of Jesus Christ, their Savior. Look again with me at chapter 2, verse 9 and 10. Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. So Paul moves from wifely submission to the submission of bondservants. And although the station of slave is not exactly the same thing as the station of an employee, quite different. The relations are similar enough to bring the application that slaves and employees are to submit to their masters, their bosses. If slaves, after all, are called to submit to their masters, certainly then free employees are called upon to submit to their bosses. But fast forward a few verses here and look at again at chapter 3, verse 1. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. So Paul tells Titus to remind his people. And of course, this word for Titus' people is also a word for us as well. It's a reminder for us. It is a principle of Bible interpretation that whenever a spokesman of God tells the people of God that they need to be reminded of something, it's safe to assume that we might soon forget it, that we need that reminder. And as much as some do not like this topic of submission, it is thoroughly biblical. And it strikes against the vitals of the proud heart. Therefore, we need to be reminded. And not just once, but a continual reminder. It is what Paul says here is for him to remind the people over and over. Continually put this good thing of submission before your people's faces. Why? Because our pride continues to buck up against any kind of submission. 
He doesn't have a a one-time reminder in mind. He has a regular, constant reminder of the goodness and of the necessity of submission. Now, teens tend to dislike their parents' regular reminders to plug in their phone at the appointed time, to do their schoolwork, to set the table, to do all the rest of their duties. And you'll hear, yeah, Dad, I know. You've already told me. You don't need to remind me. Maybe I'm reminding you because you didn't do it when I told you to do it the first time. These reminders are for their good. These reminders recall to their minds who is in charge, who is the parent, and what helpful duties they must perform for the good of the household. And regular reminders are not for children alone. They're not for teenagers alone either. When we move into adulthood, we need these reminders. And not primarily because with age we tend to forget where we put things or what we've come in a room to do. We need reminders because that self-exalting heart joins us from infancy to childhood, into adolescence and adulthood, often challenging authority. Do I need, really need to submit in this area? This is what our hearts are asking. How can I get away from this authority? How can I do my own will and not have to submit to his or to her will? And we are reminded, pun intended, from the most recent ABF series in 2 Peter, of the constant reminders that he wrote. Short book, but over and over again, he would say, I would, by way of reminder, stir you up. It is my desire to remind you of the gospel truths so that you are not devoted to false doctrine, so that you can be faithful in the midst of much persecution. You need to be reminded, he's telling his audience. And he maximizes those three chapters as one long reminder of the truth of God. And of course, if you look at the Old Testament Look at Israel, Israelites, they certainly need to be reminded, didn't they? Over and over again, they failed to remember. They failed to recall the truths of God. And that's why the Lord would regularly put before them men like Moses and Joshua and prophets. And sadly, the Israelites often killed those spokesmen of reminder. What are we going to do when we're reminded with the Word of God what is our duty? What is ours to believe? We must always, with humbled hearts, receive these divine reminders to be submissive as a check on our pride. Whenever there's a call to be submissive, don't say, well, here it comes again. The Lord's just really harping on this. Say, this is a word for me. I need to grow in submission. Lord, help me to grow in submission. Now, we can identify what submission is by highlighting here what it is not. It is not man-pleasing, but it is well-pleasing. It's not man-pleasing, but it is God-pleasing. This word is is a favorite of Paul's. 
He is the only one who uses this word in the New Testament. And it always speaks of doing what is pleasing in the sight of God. That's why I said it is not man-pleasing, but God-pleasing. Romans 12 says we are to offer to God all that we are as living, holy, acceptable sacrifices. That word acceptable is well-pleasing, God-pleasing sacrifices. In Romans 14, if you refuse to cause your brother to stumble, that is an act acceptable to God, well-pleasing to God. In 2 Corinthians 5, 9, if we are at home or away, our aim is to please our Lord. It is to be God-pleasing. Wherever we are, whenever we are, our focus is to be pleasing to the Lord. Ephesians 5, 10, a word uh, to those children of the light. They try to discern what pleases the Lord. And to the degree that they avail themselves of the word of God and plead with God's spirit, they will then discern what is truly pleasing to the Lord. In Philippians 4, 18, the Philippians' gifts to Paul have been a sacrifice acceptable to God, well-pleasing to God. And a word to the children in Colossians 3, obey your parents. Why? For this is pleasing to the Lord. Children, when you obey your parents... That is a God-pleasing act of obedience. God loves that. He delights in your obedience. And in Hebrews 13, 21, this benediction, may the Lord equip you to do what is pleasing in his sight. We depend on the grace of God, this divine equipment to do what is pleasing to the Lord. Any act of submission is a grace from God, and it is acceptable in God's sight. So I cite all these verses to see the emphatic reminder that whoever you are, and despite whomever you serve, your whole life of submission is to God. It is a service rendered to God, your head. Whether those who are above you acknowledge this or not, that's immaterial. It doesn't matter. Your head knows that he's called you to submit. And that alone can be pleasing to him when you do it in faithfulness to him. And we submit because our Savior is our Lord. He is our master. He isn't just a friend of sinners. He is our Lord. He calls the shots. He says, follow me. And in submission, we follow him. And we say, following me, following him, means submitting to various individuals. And so our service isn't ultimately to man, but it is to the Son of Man. This is not to say that we don't try to please our husbands, our wives. Certainly, we seek to please our spouses. We seek to please our parents, our bosses. Your boss loves it when you do a good job. And sometimes you will be compensated for that consistent faithfulness in work. They'll say, good work. And you get paid a little extra. It's good to please your boss. You certainly don't want a displeased boss. Sometimes we try to please also our governors, our presidents. It's not wrong 
to try to please man. It is wrong when man has taken the place of God. When we say, this relationship is the most important relationship. That my relationship with the Lord plays second fiddle to this relationship here. That my my very life and sustenance, my maintenance, depends on this person thinking well of me. And so I must direct all of my energies to please this individual. That's sinful. You must direct all of your energies to please God. We're always making it our aim to please the Lord, doing what he calls us to do. So submission is not man-pleasing, it is God-pleasing. It is also not argumentative, but it is peaceable. Whenever this word is used, it's used to speak of contradiction, to speak of speaking against, to talking against someone or something. In Luke 20, it's used of the Sadducees who have come to Jesus, those who deny the resurrection. They speak against the resurrection. In John 19, the Jews pressured Pilate, saying that by by freeing Jesus, they would oppose Caesar. You're not going to be Caesar's friend. You're going to contradict this, this authority. Well, so be it. In Titus 1, we already saw this word used. Paul uses this word for rebuke. He says we are to rebuke those who argue, those who contradict, those who talk back to God. This is not to say that we can't follow the Lord when he says, come, let us reason together. Certainly we can have godly conversation. We ought to have godly conversation. We ought to have iron sharpening iron. We ought to encourage one another, stir one another up to love and good deeds. But Paul has in mind here that God-denying action, that God-contradicting behavior. That's not submission. There is certainly a distinction between talking back to someone and talking to someone. Parents, you know this. You might sometimes say to your child, don't, put, don't talk back to me. But you don't always say that whenever they talk to you. You know the distinction. You know that one is, I'm going to contradict what you say. I'm going to disobey what you say versus regular communication and communion with with your, with your parents. And to miss this distinction is to misconstrue submission and even to endanger yourself. Apply to women, wives submitting to their husbands. Biblical submission is not being a doormat who can't share her thoughts. The Bible is not saying the, the posture of the woman is to be, yes, sir, thank you for that subjection, sir. May I have some more, please, sir? And having no voice in the relationship, well, why did you get married to begin with? That's not what God calls us to. We can respectfully submit, even when we make godly appeals and entrust the matter to the Lord. I sure hope husbands avail themselves of the wisdom of their wives. I would hope that employers avail themselves of the insights that their employees have. And I would hope that parents will avail themselves of the observation that the, children's make, that the children make. We can all do some good learning. But children can, and wives can, and employees can 
express their disagreement, have a, a real engagement, a conversation. And parents, you then prepare your children well when you teach them how to make godly appeal. Obviously, when they get older, it shouldn't be enough for you just, well, because dad says, because mom says. Yes, there's a place for that. There's a right authority there. But you are raising people who will go out and leave and leave you and cleave to someone else. And they will be a thinking individual. You want to have them engage in conversation with you beforehand that they can offer godly appeals. Respectfully, of course. The way I treat my almost 17-year-old is different from how I treated him when he was one. Because he's not one anymore. Talking back, talking to, distinction there. One example of, one interesting, witty example of submission is that of Epictetus, the Stoic. He was a slave for a certain period of time. And when his master was twisting his leg, Epictetus objected calmly. But when this objection was ignored and his leg broken, he simply said, I told you this would happen. That is not to condone abuse, so you know. I'm never in favor of abuse. And submission does not mean remain in the same home where you are physically being abused. It is you are to call out for the authorities to get help. But the submissive know that ultimately their authorities have to answer to God. So we can focus on serving the Lord despite the mistreatment that we receive. Submission is not man-pleasing, but God-pleasing. It is not argumentative, but it is peaceable. And it is certainly not pilfering, which means stealing. But it is self-giving. It's generous. The word speaks of holding back on God's goods. This word is used only one other time to speak of Ananias and Sapphira who held back the goods from their own sale of their, their resources, their home. They held them back from God. And they lied about what they had gotten. Such is the way of Judas, who held back the kingdom goods for himself and did not use the kingdom goods for the good of another. We resist the urge to steal our authorities' goods, their honor, their position. We say with Joseph, tempted by Potiphar's wife, how can I do this thing and sin against my God? But also offend my master. We don't then steal our employer's time while at work. We don't steal the office supplies, on and on. We don't take, but we give. Submission is giving. We give our time. We give our mental energy. We give our physical strength to do our authorities some good, to bless them. All that we do is to be done in all good faith, in faithfulness. Like Joseph, we take the providential punches as they come from the Lord, and we then use them to bless our God and to do good to our masters. Joseph could have talked back to God for being thrown into, into the prison. He could have said, I was being faithful to you, Lord. I didn't sleep with the woman. I was honest, and this is how you repay me? Prison? 
I'm innocent. And all that I've done has been good for my master. But we know that Joseph doesn't operate that way. He has that firm trust in the Lord. Instead, he he maximizes his imprisonment, doesn't he? And even becomes chief over the prisoners. And at this, you might say, well, okay, but that's being in charge of a prison. It's not being free. Okay, granted. But he who is faithful with little will be entrusted with much, as he will be, as you keep reading the Joseph story. He became a great blessing, not just to Egypt, but to Israel. Because he sought to please the Lord in all things. And God made him prosper. So why submit in these ways? It is, as Paul says, to adorn the doctrine of God. So you take social media on the one hand, and you add people without a biblical work ethic on the other, and what do you get? Folly. You get idiocy. Now here's where it's going to sound like I'm an old man, you know, just decrying the imperfections of the younger generation, and so I am. Employees love to share their frustrations on social media. I don't get it, okay? But they they must be on a mission to get fired from the job that they willingly agreed to do. You guys know that online ordering has become a thing. It has its pluses and minuses. People from home can place orders for pickup when the store opens. And when the employees clock in, what do the employees often come to but a long list of orders? Well, when a certain Alejandra experienced the machine that overflowed with orders, she immediately, instead of working, mind you, took to TikTok, posted some photos, and wrote, I love my job. Quickly, people chimed in, looks like it's break time to me. Or, I would just walk out. Now, imagine... Her boss, seeing that post, wouldn't he wonder, are you upset because you have to work? What did you think you were coming into work to do? Just look at some orders? Sympathize with those who want them? But Surely this behavior does not adorn that workplace. Surely her conduct contradicts her own agreement to work for the company. Did she think she was going to get paid for not working? That's not how work works. The language of adornment here is used throughout Scripture. Peter tells the wife of an unbelieving husband that even her godly submission adorns the gospel. The church in the new heavens and earth is adorned like a bride awaiting her husband. The point is not that the gospel is not beautiful in itself, because it is. And how is that? Because Christ is the gospel, and Christ is beauty. Certainly the gospel, Christ, is beautiful in itself. So Paul's not saying that the gospel is, you know, 75% beautiful, and you just have to add 25% with your good works. Add to that beauty. It's not what Paul's saying. But the point is that our submissive behavior befits the Word of God. It becomes 
That is to say, it is fitting, it is proper to the Word of God. Through our conduct, we commend the gospel of God. We show to everyone how God's doctrine, how God's teaching, His, His grace, His work in our lives transforms us. That God's Word has an effect on our sinful souls. That we are changed. That we are being changed. We who were unsubmissive to the Word of God, we who refused to repent, have been so remarkably blessed by the appearing of the grace of God that we now honor Him in all things, in our relationships. This submission is a plenary submission. That is to say, it is a full submission. Paul says that the slaves are to be submissive in everything. He says in Ephesians that uh, the same thing to the wives for their husbands and to children for their parents. When Paul speaks generally concerning the church's call to submit even to unbelieving rulers and authorities, he means for us to admit, to submit to all authorities in all that is lawful. Whether they are masters and rulers, authorities, husbands, parents, employers, God's people are to submit to these authorities as a work of faithfulness to their Savior. Now for fallen hearts, Submission assumes a clash of wills. The temptation to disobey or to ignore what has been said, what has been commanded. Now, it's not like a wife will have difficulty submitting to her husband who lavishes bouquets of flowers on her every week and only does what his wife's heart desires. You wouldn't say, oh, yeah, she's quite the submissive wife. She gets everything she wants. Submission becomes hard when the husband says, you know, honey, I've heard you. I've heard the argument. I've, given, I've heard all the reasons you have for, for this. But we're going to go a different direction. We're not going to go there. We're, going, we're, not, going to, we're not going to buy that. We're, we're going to do this instead. I've heard you. But we're not doing that. That's where submission is occasioned. That's where the heart needs to say, Okay, I'm going to submit to my husband as I submit to my head, Christ. Submission becomes a challenge when the boss tells you to clean the toilets. Not when he says to that extroverted kid, go play with all the kids out there. I'm going to submit. Let's get down there and, and, and clean the toilets. Submission happens when there's that clash of wills. I don't want to do that, but now this authority is telling me I need to do that. In all ways that do not, just, do not detract from adorning God's saving doctrine, we are to submit. But this then means that there are times when it is right to refuse. Yes, we must submit to all those who are above us, but this does not mean that they have absolute authority over us. Wives cannot hide under the guise of submission and say that, that their disobedience was only because of their honor to their head. Well, I didn't come to church today because my husband said I, I wasn't supposed to. I couldn't do that. No, it's at that time you say, honey, I love you, but I love Jesus more. And he's told me to come and worship him. And you're welcome to come. That's what happens. That would be proper use of Submission. Because submission to an earthly authority is not supposed to uh, kick Christ off the throne. He is our head. He is our king. He is our master. 
He is our Savior. Employees cannot use submission to justify covering for their boss's theft of company money, even if his firing means that you will be fired too. Soldiers don't get a free pass just because they were following orders. Citizens cannot use submission as an excuse for inaction. When godless rulers govern, it is our biblical responsibility to pray for their repentance, and if they do not repent, then to pray for their removal, and even proceed with lawful means to bring their removal about. And one way we do that is through voting. Churches cannot say, well, the government says I can't worship God, so we're not going to worship God. We're going to close the doors for a long, long time. The law is good when it is used lawfully. And we must obey God over man. In Luther's time, when the German princes were commanded to stop their pastors from preaching the gospel, they simply said, we will not, my Lord. And they offered their necks to the emperor. You don't get to tell us to stop preaching the gospel. Submission, yes. It's always to Christ. After all, his example leads the way. He doesn't call us to something that he did not first do himself. His life was well-pleasing to the Father. His life was literally God-pleasing. It was literally a sacrifice to his Father. And he would say in John 8, Which of you convicts me of sin? I always do what is pleasing to my Father. Never did he argue or talk back to his Father. He submitted Never did he steal his father's glory, but instead prayed, Father, give to me the glory that I had with you in the beginning. From before the foundation of the world, return that glory to me. And the way to do that was for his submissive life to get up on that cross. As a living sacrifice, as a dying sacrifice for the Father and for your salvation. And then he was exalted. Always did he fight the fight. And always in good faith until the very end. And in the end, he adorned the doctrine of his father with that beautiful crown of thorns. Amen. Let's pray. A gracious father, it is to you that we submit ultimately... It is our desire to please you in all things, and we understand, Father, that in our earth relationships, submission is hard. Sometimes it's not black and white. And so, Lord, we do call upon you for wisdom. We call upon your spirit for grace that we might submit to you in all things and how that submission would would look like in our relationships with others. May Our sacrifices, Lord, may our lives be well-pleasing in your sight. Amen.